This episode of the Fabulous Learning Nerds is sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTIs, counselor, and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hey, it's that time of year. Time when we celebrate the accomplishments of young adults as they transition from high school to their selected adult path in life. Now, for many of them, this means going off to college and diving into higher education. But what does it take to be a successful learner in college? What are some techniques that can help you study better? And how should you approach time with your professor? Well, for many of us, we simply figured this out on our own or we dropped out for something else. Well, today we've got a special gift for all the graduates out there. This week, the nerds welcome friends of the show, Jay and Julia Thielen, as they discuss Jay's new book, The Secret Syllabus. It's a guide for new higher education students to help them prepare for success and their college career. This is a show you won't want to miss and want to share with your graduates. So let's get started. They are the fabulous learning nerds. Because if you're tired of the old ways of getting it done, you've got the fabulous learning nerds. Scott, Dan, and Abby are making it fun. The best ideas that you've ever heard. So everybody spread the word. They're going to keep you with turning the fabulous learning nerds. Hey everybody, welcome back to another fantastic episode of your Fabulous Learning Nerds. I'm your host, Scott Chudy, and with us, you love him, Dan Coonrod. Dan the man. Oh yeah. Mr. Coonrod. Mr. Shooty. How are you doing today, sir? I'm fair. On the fair to Midland scale, fair. Just, just fair? Fair to Midland. So why are you just on the fair side of fair to Midland, sir? No, fair is good. Midland, Midland is 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 the 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 less good. Fair is good. So I'm good. Okay, I'm good. It's Sunday. Right. Hanging out with you. Great guests. So it's my anniversary. Seven years my wife has put up with what? my shenanigans. Yeah, I know, right? So we went what? to um, we went to a little broad. We have a Broadway theater kind of thing. They do, you know local Broadway theater stuff. They're pretty good. I mean, it's not New York or anything. But have, you, have you ever seen Rock of Ages? Have you seen that musical? No. It's fantastic. You, should, you need to go see it. Yes. Need to go see that show. Fantastic show. Okay. Had, a, had a great time. One of the best shows I've seen at this place, and I've seen a lot of great shows. It was a lot of, a lot of um, up, uplifting good uh, 80s hair metal. So there's my recommendation. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. I'm I'm sold. <laughs> uh, well, and how could you not like 80s hair metal, right? I don't know. I don't know. You know, a funny thing, I was in the car yesterday with my kiddo and uh she's just turned 16 and I'm um, listening to music uh from my teenage years, which is a bunch of uh mid to late 90s rock. And she was just like, man, like, when did this song come out? 
And I was like, oh, like 96, 97. She's like, oh, wow, that's such a long time ago for this song to be so good. And I was like, awesome, awesome. Thanks, kiddo. And then you're talking about 80s air metal. And I'm like, man, there's so many great songs from that time. I was a kid, but still. And then I'm like, oh, nope. Back to feeling old. Awesome. <laughs> I know. Awesome, right? Uh, real music, real music. I mean, we could all get into it, but we're not. Um, <laughs> folks, we have a special, special, special treat for you. Uh, oh, by the way, Abby's on vacation. Again, I need to go and get on the Abby vacation train and take how a vacation, vacation of my own. Are, how many vacation days do we give here at Fabulous Learning Nerds? I feel like it's a lot. Like, I think we should talk to like, Abby about maybe abusing that gotten, policy. I have gotten zero, <laughs> but, you know, there it is. Oh. But, folks, we've got some friends from the show. Um, uh, back with us today, we've got uh, Julia and Jay Phelan. That's right, and um, we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit uh, uh, with uh, Julia, but mainly with Jay because I want to get to know Jay's been hasn't been on the show. This is the first time we've had a couple on the show, and uh, we're going to learn fantastic. all about. I know, right? We're going to learn all about Jay. Little uh, part of the show that we call "What's Your Deal." Hey, man. What's your deal? Julia, Jay, how you doing, my friends? Awesome. Thanks for having us. Excellent. So, Jay. Outstanding. What's your deal, man? Wow. Well, first off, it's great to be here. Thank you so much, Scott and Dan. My deal is this. I'd say that college is this spectacular, potentially spectacular experience that people can have. They can learn about how to be interesting and and successful and happy to become like the best person of your version of yourself. But rarely are we given the preparation and the guidance so that we can get the most out of it, so that we navigate college well, so we can form and nurture strong, useful relationships, mentoring, that kind of thing, so that we can learn effectively and efficiently, so we can work productively, so we can make wise decisions. All those things are essential, but you get to college and rarely are they on the on the curriculum. So what my hope is to help people just know what are the things that you should have known at the beginning. Often you know them by the end of college, but if you knew them at the beginning, how to get the most out of it, you're going to be more inspired. You're going to be more motivated. You're going to be more productive. And ultimately, you're going to be happier and more successful. But someone's got to give you that information and guidance. So my deal is I'm the guy. You're the guy. So I got to ask this That's question. Awesome. So you, I know, right? You actually work with your wife. You actually work together with Julia. I do. And this is something that uh, you've got that word nerds in, in your title of your, your podcast. I think sometimes I'll realize that it's the middle of the weekend or Julia and I are out on a date somewhere and we're at some fancy, elegant hotel bar and we're sitting there and we're talking about assessment items, how to write a better test, what you should do in a class to keep people engaged more, what kind of clever discussion board assignments you can have. And I thought, oh my God, if people were looking at us, they're going to think we're the, the like just nerdiest, strange people. But I think to find someone who is equally excited about that so you don't have to apologize and also who has training in an area that's really complementary to what I know so that I feel like we have this give and take. And in the past 20 years, I've gotten to be so much better as a teacher and as a person. 
because of all these conversations with Julia that helped me see things that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. It's almost like I get the benefit of this, this private coach or this private teacher that I get to have all of the training in educational research while being a biologist and a teacher. So yeah, I feel lucky. That's right, awesome. I'm going to make sure I keep you honest. And Julia, would you agree? I mean, what would you add to that? Like either Jay's right on the money or maybe there's some things he's missing. I think that if we were playing the newlywed game, I would have said exactly the same thing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that A, we love talking about this stuff. And I think the, the thing that he said about us having complementary um, experience and complementary skill sets is really true. You know, he is a, I mean, and everything I've learned about biology and genetics and human behavior and all those things, that comes from him, right? So it's a, it's a two-way street. But we, uh, yeah, we just have fun talking about this stuff and talking about how to, how to make learning experiences better for people and how just to teach and learn things better. So yeah. I would agree 100%. Wow. That's pretty cool. Like I would be like, this is the thing that drives me crazy about you, but we're not going to talk about that. Instead, we're going to go ahead and um, dive into our topic of the week. Okay. So Jay, you've got this awesome book coming out called The Secret Syllabus, and I think it ties into a lot of the things we just talked about. Talk to us a little bit about um, The Secret Syllabus and what made you write the book. Sure. Now, I'll say at the outset, I wrote this book with my good friend, Terry Burnham, and he and I have been co-teachers and collaborators on another book and in almost everything that we do. So Terry and I wrote this together. It came about because I think Way back when, when I started college, I was a terrible student, just really a poor student. I went to class sometimes, but it didn't speak to me about my life. I wasn't inspired by it. I felt like, I don't know, like no one was there to help me. And I really stumbled through several years, you know, failing classes and, and barely hanging on. But little by little, as I started to learn a few things, how to study better, how to just make a plan, all of those things, finally, I started thinking, wow, this is actually fun. There's a lot of value here for me. And I, from that, I was able to get into first a graduate program, a master's program in environmental studies. And that was mostly because only after finishing undergrad did I realize, wait, I like school. But I kind of messed up the first few years. So now, now, now I need like an extended undergraduate period. And I did that just enough so that then I could get into a PhD program. And then in the PhD program, I still felt like I was way behind everyone else. And only then, because one of the requirements of my PhD program was you have to be a teaching fellow. So I started doing that. And at first, I like so many things in my life, I approached it just winging it. And I got <laughs> terrible outcomes. You can't wing it. So then I thought, all right, I better do this better the next time. So then I studied, I prepared, and I got better. And I saw this weird relationship. The more I prepared, the more I thought about it, the more effective I was and the more fun I had. And as this moved all the way through graduate school and then into my career, I started seeing myself 
in all of these students that I would meet in office hours or in my classes. And they wanted to get good things out of college, but they did the wrong things all the time. And I thought, oh my God, you're in my office here and I can see you want a mentor or a recommendation letter and you're saying all the wrong things. So I thought, <laughs> it's not that they are, are bad or dumb, it's that they don't know what to do. No one has taught them. And Terry and I, we'd talk about this, we'd share our experiences and we thought, someone needs to help them. Someone needs to say, it would work better for you if you did this. It would be more effective if you tried this strategy. And little by little, we started compiling ideas and anecdotes and experiences we had had where we thought, boy, if someone had gotten to this student a little bit earlier and said, you might want to do it this way, they could save time. They could get to a better outcome. They could just make the most out of this opportunity that you know is going to go by pretty quickly. So we thought, let's see if we could do something that will set them up more for success. And I'll say this, the one other thing, there are books about how to do this, or there are websites. Oh, here are a hundred hacks to succeed in college. Our philosophy is there aren't tricks or hacks. Succeeding in college requires you know, a sustained focus effort with the content. And it requires a deep understanding of this culture of, of college and how to deal with other people, how to interact. So it's a real thing. It's a serious kind of course of study that a student has to embark on so that you can model other people's worlds, so you can get feedback properly, all of the, these things. So finally, after talking about it for years and years and years, Terry and I said, all right, it's time to put this down. And we have to put it down in the form of a book that isn't going to be loaded with obvious stuff, but is going to be filled with things that are maybe not obvious or to be filled with things that are, are like high efficiency that you could pick it up. It's like, ooh, hey, I could use this right now to to get to a better place. So that was kind of the, the genesis of the book. That's awesome. You know, I, I so wish that I had had something like that as I entered into college. I had, I had always been a great test taker, but a poor student. And so like uh, college was uh, like my first year was like, okay, cool. I can, I take tests well, so I'm skating by. And then like that second year, it was like, oh, shit, you, oh, excuse me, I dropped them. <laughs> let, me, let me go back. Like, oh, no, uh, you want me to actually like know stuff and like participate? Like, oh, uh, uh oh, I don't know how to do any of that. And like I bombed out, like just a completely like crash and burn. Uh, and yeah, this is awesome. I love I love that you and Terry have like come together to write this. Dan, I think that you really hit the nail on the head when you say a lot of people get to college and they just got into college, like their dream college. They were the star of their high school. So the message, the sustained message they've been getting their whole life is you rule. You got it figured out. But the problem is you can succeed in high school at, with just having a big brain. So you've got this big brain. You say you're a good test taker. I'll just say it. You're a smart guy. So you figure it out. But it's not about just figuring it out. You want to thrive. You want to make the most out of it. But you've come in with exactly the wrong sort of feedback that says, you don't need help. You got this. Yeah. And then you get to college where it's a different sort of animal. It's that you are now going to be thinking at a much deeper level. 
You're going to be moving more quickly in what you get. You're going to have to integrate stuff, all these things that you never had to do before. Instead, just with your big memory and your ability to cram, you could get by. So I think that that is this double whammy that people think they already have it. Then they get here and they don't, and they're thrown for a loop. Everything that used to be the right solution is no longer the right solution. So it's almost like I have to first, it's like a misconception in education. I have to take what they think they know and undo that. And then you have to build it back up. Like this is a different game now. You were great before, but if you want to be great at college, you're going to have to be now a different version of you. And there's nothing wrong with that. Why would you want to be still the 17 year old version of you? You're, you're better now and, and you can, you can be more sophisticated in your plan and your strategies and your actions. Uh, maybe, maybe if you can share a little bit from the book, uh, just with us, yeah. What is something that as you and Terry wrote the book that you were able to look back at and be like, man, like I wish I knew this then. If there, is there like one particular piece that stands out that makes you go like, man, I wish I could grab a hold of my younger self and just shake them and be like, you got to know this. One thing, all right, that, that, that puts a lot of pressure on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I don't want you to give away everything for free, but you know, let's just go one. <laughs> oh, okay, two things, I, two well, things. Then, <laughs> now, if I do one thing, I would say this. It's that as a student, you have to get inside the head of your instructors. You have to, what Terry likes to say is you have to model their world. That we go around the world just looking through our own eyes from our own experience, our own perspective, which often causes us to do things like you walk into a class that's gonna be a lecture of to 300 people and you walk right up to the professor and you, you say, did you get my email? And then you open up your textbook, you say, I'm really having trouble with this problem right here. I think the answer in the back, and the professor's getting ready to speak to 300 people. You know, their, their adrenaline and cortisol are through the roof. Their heart's at 130 beats per minute. They can't get the mic to work. They can't get the slides to work. And you're like, here, I need help on this problem in the back of the book. And, and they're not even sure who you are. So if you model their world, you think, this probably isn't the best time for that. Or when you show up at your office, their office, you don't just start in again talking. You say, hi, my name's Jay. I'm in your, your intro bio class, and I'm really loving it so far. Uh, that's also modeling their world, that they are invested. They would like to know, hey, I'm really liking your class so far. I especially like how you were talking about you know, these economic games as part of our study of human behavior. That was really cool. I was wondering if you might be able to help me with X, Y, or, or Z. So that modeling their world, understanding where they're coming from, and at any given time, what's the best way to get what you want, I think is, is a really useful thing. So if I had one overarching thing, it would be that, because then you'll realize that they've chosen a job where they teach, where they mentor students, all these things, they wanna help you. So they actually do, it's not an adversarial relationship. The more you start thinking about them and their perspective, then the better you're going to turn it into, be able to turn it into a sort of mutually beneficial kind of relationship. But you said two things. If I could say two things, then that's sort of uh, the, the big picture. Two things I would say would be this. The first would be that you probably never learned how to study when you were in high school, because as we said, you have a big brain. You could just memorize stuff. You could game the system on the exams and so on. 
Turns out there's a whole world of thousands of education researchers who would like to know, how do we learn? What's the best way to study? They have answers. But in almost any class you take in college, you get to the class and you look on the syllabus, it's all about content delivery, content delivery. It's all physics or it's all history or it's all math or biology. Where does it say, here's how you should learn this material. Here's how you should take notes. Here's how you should review your notes. So there are, in the book, we give six different bits of guidance from the educational research literature, none of which you know as a student. <laughs> and that when you do that, you're going to be more effective at learning. So that would be the first one is to not assume that you know how to learn because you made it through high school. You don't. So learn how to do it. The second would be that everyone tells you these things like, oh, you got to go to office hours. And then they leave it at that. And so every student comes thinking, oh, yeah, my guidance counselor, my parents, everyone's like, you got to go to office hours. But they don't tell you what to do. So again, why would you know what to do in office hours? The assumption students make then is, oh, I guess I should ask him to just deliver more content. Can you explain photosynthesis again? But they've got a textbook. They've got a video of lecture. They've got a teaching assistant. They have Khan Academy. They have a million YouTube videos. Is that really the best use of this one opportunity where you go to their office and you control the agenda? Our thought is, hey, use this. Go in there and try to get from them the things that you don't have any other avenues of acquiring that information or knowledge. So you might ask them, if you were a student in this class, how would you prepare? Or you say, hey, what do you think is the biggest mistake that students make when they are, are trying to learn the material in your class? Or you say, hey, I'm trying to figure out what my major should be. How did you come to become a professor? What was your pathway? Did you always know? Did you change ever? Those are totally legit topics in office hours, but you're not finding them elsewhere. And when you have those conversations, throughout the conversation, you start learning, oh, here's how I should study in this class. Oh, here's how my instructor writes an exam. Here's how they create a lecture. Here's the mistake they think I'm going to make. That can be extremely useful. I, at UCLA alone, I've taught 17,000 students over the years. That's a lot of students. So any situation that they're in that they think is confusing or they think that they've got it figured out, I've thought about it. I've addressed it with a lot of different students. When we have this conversation, then I can help them. They leave office hours then, having had a much richer interaction, I think. Plus, at some point, almost everyone in college, they're gonna want a recommendation letter for something, or they're gonna want guidance in how they apply to graduate school or how they get a job or something like that. If you go in at the end and you say, hi, I was in your class two years ago, I got an A, can you write me a recommendation letter? That's not gonna be a very strong letter. But if you've been to seven of my office hours where we've talked about my pathway to becoming a professor, we've talked about your struggles or the things that you're trying to, to figure out, by the time now you are thinking about graduate school, I get to write about your whole journey, how you got there, how you've bounced back from setbacks, how you you know just made your way and become a person who is going to be a big plus for whatever the job or career or program that you're applying to are. So you get all these different things by, by starting out in office hours thinking, I want to get to know you. I want to know the things that you can 
can teach me that maybe are content related, but maybe are also about, about education, about development, about critical thinking, about transfer of ideas, all of those things. So those two things, I think, together will cause you to end up having much richer relationships by the time you finish. You'll be much more likely to, to have, a, I think, a more well-informed and well-thought-out plan as you move along. Let me move backwards for just a second because you sparked something really interesting in me, and that's this whole idea of learning how to study, right? So um, you, you're right. Like, graduate from high school, did really, really well, go to college. I think I know what I'm doing. I got my three by five flashcards. By the way, I probably spent as much on three by five flashcards as I did in my entire college education, right? So that's how <laughs> I got my way through college, is through, you know memorizing late night, all that good stuff, but no one really taught me how to study. Like for our audience and for our instructional designers too, as you think about how people learn, like, and I don't want you to give away everything, like, but what do we, what would be some of your suggestions on here's some things you should keep in mind when it comes to proper studying techniques? That's great. Probably the biggest setback that has come in the last 10, 15, 20 years is with the advent of PowerPoint, which can be good, but often is not, you have a lot of instructors having these really beautiful illustrations or outlines or guidelines to how the class goes. But the students will say, hey, it would be way better if you could, could post these so that then I could have them and then I could follow along. Otherwise, it's taken me too long to keep up with the writing. Well, it turns out that taking notes is hugely valuable to learning. And we've moved further and further and further away from this. Instructors are like, yeah, I'll help you out. I don't want to be like a mean guy and have you not be able to listen to what I'm saying. Their intentions can be good. But it turns out that writing notes, even if you're writing as fast as you can and you're missing some of what's being said, that is better than having notes. There's a great paper that was published that said, taking notes is better than having notes. So the first thing is you take these notes. And then, Scott, you say you've got your three by five index cards. There's nothing wrong with flashcards. I, what I like to tell my students is, all right, take the notes as fast as you can, because I, I can talk very fast in, in class, and I have a lot of stuff going on, images and all that. But I say, write those down, and then later, transcribe your notes onto something new. I tell them bigger cards, five by eight, <laughs> so that it's not just <laughs> one idea, but a whole class period might be six or seven of these. But what you're doing now, you're taking notes again, but you have to integrate it with your prior knowledge. You are thinking, okay, am I gonna switch to a different color on my note card now? Am I going to indent it a little? Am I going to put a box around this because it's a definition or whatever? So all of that is part of the learning process, this writing it down. Even as you feel like, oh my God, I'm barely keeping up. This is killing me. It'd be so much better if I could kick my feet back and listen because it's active. So now you've got these great notes. And I'll tell you, for me, this is one of the biggest improvements in my college success was that because I like to be organized, as soon as I started transcribing my notes onto my, my big cards in nice, pretty colors, I had pride in them. And I thought, wow, I love these. Now, I didn't want to have a gap in them because I had sk skipped class, which I used to skip class all the time. So I started going <laughs> because I needed to have all of, all of them. Then when I had all of that done, 
I started thinking, all right, well, now what am I supposed to do? I was in the library. I had a friend and he was a, uh, a guy on the soccer team at UCLA. And part of their requirement was you've got to go to the library for like four and a half hours on five days a week. So he asked me, he's like, do you want to come with me? And I said, yeah, sure. So we go to the library and that's when I'm sitting there. And I'm like, I don't even know what it means to study. But I didn't want to admit this. So after I'd recopied all these notes, made them look pretty, I thought, I'm going to go through and I'm going to, I'm going to like jeopardize all the cards. I'm going to turn them into jeopardy. I'm going to write on some other card, just little mini questions to which I already have the answers in the notes. And I would go through and I would write down maybe 20, 30, 40 total questions, just trivial, almost regurgitation type questions. But then for my study, I'd get scratch paper and I'd say, all right, now I'm going to write down the answer to this. And it was mostly just regurgitation, but I'd try and write it out without looking at my notes. And I'd realize as I start writing it down, like, I'm like, oh my God, I don't really know it. If someone described it to me, it would all sound familiar. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. That's, that's what she said. But that's recognition, which is very different from mastery. So as I'm writing it down, I think, all right, this is terrible. Then I'd go to my notes and I'd say, what would I do if I had, uh, if it, I wanted it to be a perfect answer? So I'd redo it. Then I'd hide the notes. And now I'd try and write it again on another sheet of scratch paper. And if I could do that, then when I was done writing those better answers to all the questions, I'd throw the scratch paper away. I didn't want to think, oh, now I have this other thing that I, that I value. Look at what I have, all this stuff. Because going into a test, they don't care how great my, my file of, of pre-written answers is. The thing has to be in my head. So I've taken the notes. I've written the questions. Now I've practiced writing the answers. And then I've fixed them based on my notes and maybe the, the textbook or something like that. By the time I was done with that, when I went into the exam, I had already done the thing that I was going to be graded on, which was to write sentences about biology. I had written hundreds of sentences about biology on all the topics. So uh, essentially, I had rehearsed the thing that I was going to need to demonstrate as, as my mastery of the material. Just those little changes, which really came about out of embarrassment that I'm sitting in the library and I can't tell my friend that I don't know what to do, caused me to stumble onto a version of what educational researchers have arrived at as a very effective way to do it, taking the notes, uh, what they call elaborative interrogation, you know, trying to answer it, trying to rehearse it in the way that, that you are going to have to demonstrate your mastery. And then the one last thing I would say is that if you're doing that all along the way, those are tasks that you can, you can take care of every day, independent of when the exam is, then comes exam time and a lot of the material i haven't written my answers now it's been weeks so enough time has gone by for me to forget what it was that i studied before and you might think well why'd i bother then but the way our brain works is that if you learn something and then you forget it and then you have to go back and learn it again you learn it way better your long-term retention is better your ability to to use it in different ways is better all of that so that is a surprise. Again, it feels like, oh, this is inefficient. Just like taking notes might feel inefficient. Forgetting stuff and then relearning feels inefficient. And yet you come away with it at the end being much more knowledgeable and having a much more practical uh, grasp of the material. You know, uh, two things that, that you said that like really 
run home. When I was a trainer, I knew I had gotten to a good place when I didn't need the slides anymore. So that way I could have a conversation and could like promote people to take notes and then literally pull up the slide deck at the very end and be like, all right, cool, let's review. And I, like, I knew when I got to that place, like, oh, I don't suck at this. Uh, but also you talk about like a lot of like, uh, like education. I feel like in a lot of places has just become regurgitation. Like here are some facts, here are some simple pass fail questions. And if you can pass that, you have, you know, you have mastery of the knowledge and you exactly what you said. That's not mastery. That's, that's memorization and, and, and clever, you know, clever retention techniques uh, until you can like, uh, what did you say? Interrogative what? Oh, elaborative interrogation. I, I love that. Yeah, that's that also, it's, it's also used by, I think, the CIA, but uh, in a different way. <laughs> oh, okay, I like it less, <laughs> but I still love it. Um, uh, and I think that's fantastic because like, until you can like talk about a point, have an opinion about a point, and be able to defend that opinion, you don't know it. Yeah, and, and I'll even add to that, you have to have the confidence that you can yes. do that. I think in many cases, what my hope is, if I do a class, I want to know that my student, when they get back to their dorm room or their apartment, that they're gonna tell their roommate something that they learned in class today. A lot of things have to go right for that to happen. They have to believe that whatever it was we talked about was interesting enough and fun and relevant to their life enough. So that sort of informs how I prepare a class. But then I have to have done it in such a way that they feel like I can talk about this. I can explain it. I'm not just saying, oh, we talked about this and this and this. They can say, hey, guess what? Did you know this uh, is the case? And here's why. So as soon as you've done that, yeah, you're exactly right that you talk about this stuff. It's like, wow, suddenly... I know that. Or I can even, if now I get a novel situation, I can say, well, given what I know about this other thing, I'll bet that this is the situation. And now, you know, without even realizing it, whoa, you became a, an educated guy. Yeah, I don't want to forget about Julia. So what, um, with the stuff that you're doing with 211 um, and some of the research you've done, you know, what are some interesting things that you can correlate to what Jay's talking about? Yeah, and I think the, I mean what I was going to say earlier is the that big picture understanding that we can help students get about how learning is hard, right? So when and we talked about that last time I was on the show that that and that's my my mantra, you know, learning is hard, and that if we can get students to understand that and to realize that okay, if I just pick up my book and I just look at stuff and I have this, as Jay was saying, yeah, this recognition of 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 the material, that that's not that's not enough, and it doesn't really indicate that you've truly learned or understood something. And so I think there are two pieces to it. One is this: under, if we understand how learning happens and that it is difficult and it's you know it's worth it, but you have to put an effort to get to some level of expertise. And then thinking about what are the things that you have to do to actually get there. And they're all just things that are more you know, active than passive. And I hate it when people say active learning because I think it's just a jargony term. But, we're, but when I use when I say active, what I'm really saying is you're doing something. You're actually thinking, okay, how does this, what I'm learning now, 
relate to what I learned last week, right? Or how does, you know, what's an analogy for this concept that I'm learning? Or how can I figure out how to explain this to someone else? Or can I look at some stuff, put it away? And can I, like Jay was saying, you know, retrieve it from my memory and write it out? And I think what students often don't do is that piece of, okay, my, my professor has told me that there are going to be three, you know, half page essays or you know, little mini essays that I have to write on you know, some topic that, that comes from the class. And then I don't actually try and do that like while I'm studying. I might be like, oh yeah, I know I have to write an essay. So I, I might write like three bullet points and, you know, as I'm studying. Well, that's not what you're going to have to do. So do the thing that you're going to have to do, right? And and that's harder and, and requires you to be a little bit more uh, motivated and a little bit more disciplined. But if you actually do that, then A, it gives you practice and B, oftentimes it reveals to you, oh dear, I really don't know this as well as I felt that I did. But all of that has to come back to, you know, learning is hard. And, and when something is hard, that's when you're learning something. All too often, I think we we don't want to be vulnerable enough to fail. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, but I really feel like that's where a lot of learning takes place. And I've yeah. always been challenging my team. Can we build failure into the model of what we're doing? Because it's so powerful, right? And put it into a place where it's nice and safe. Um, yeah. So, and so I love that Jay brought that up. Like, Hey, um, I, you know, relearning something is, is not a failure. It's actually a good thing. Right. So I, I feel that that's really uh, an incredibly powerful part of, of what, what you're talking about, which is great. And I think there's a certain thing about that, about the failure thing. When you build that in and start to normalize it a little bit more, I think then you start to, again, have students who are more willing to, I don't know, take a risk, put their hand up and answer a question, even if they get it wrong, because a lot of students don't want to do that because they feel like, oh, no, I, I, I feel bad that I don't really know this. But if you create an environment in which that's acceptable and accepted and people feel comfortable doing that, then you're just going to have a much, um, you'll just allow them to learn that much better because they're actually being confronted with, oh, and maybe I put my hand up and maybe everybody else in the class also said, yeah, I had that same question. And you don't feel like you're alone in your misunderstanding. I just want to say, uh, just based on what you guys are saying, right after this, I'm going to add great at failure to my resume. That's going on. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I, am, I am epic at it. <laughs> oh, oh, one of the things when, when Terry and I were writing the book, we, we know that there's such a, a huge body of literature saying exactly what you guys are saying, that when you fail at something, it causes you to return to it with, I think, uh, a much better mindset to, to tackle it. So you think about what you're going to do. What Terry and I discovered, I thought, wow, well, I want to show some examples of people who have failed and how they've bounced back because they're inspiring as well. And I thought, God, I don't even know where to look for these. And as soon as I started thinking, well, who are some people that I really liked? I looked into their stories and literally every great person that I know has some spectacular failures on their resume, <laughs> that they were disastrous. So it isn't this isolated thing like, oh, that one guy, remember, he had really a quirky background. No, everybody did from stories that we all know about or that a lot of people know about, you know, Michael Jordan getting cut from a basketball team in high school. 
that didn't cause him to think, wow, I'm going to have to go into, you know, I don't know, insurance sales or education research instead of basketball. It made him think, I got to change my methods or I'm going to get the same outcome. I have to work harder. Or there's this famous biology professor at Harvard Medical School. And he, after he already had failed out of grade school, but he bounced back, got into a PhD program at Duke. And then while he's in this program there, couldn't pass one of the classes. And he gets a letter saying, because you didn't pass this class sufficiently, you're no longer a graduate student at Duke. And that was it. And then he failed. And I thought, oh my God, like that's, that's tough. But he, he sort of picked himself up. He thought, I've got to change my ways, changed his ways. Eventually did get his PhD, became a, a professor at Harvard. He's got like 500 publications and 100 patents and Time Magazine called him like one of the most, you know, 100 most influential scientists. And all I can think about is, is he's got to be thinking, you know, thank you, Duke, that, that I'm a better person because I struggled. And at the moment, that was the worst thing that had ever happened to me. But now I think, wow, whatever I was doing, that didn't quite work out. I have to think about it. It's going to be something that now I have, I have to step back and, and take a meta look at my methods or, or my interaction between I get feedback, how do I respond to it, and, and so on. So yes, having that on your resume usually is the mark of you're a successful person. <laughs> I love it. I wish more people would agree with it, but I totally love it. I think it's great. <laughs> hey, question for you, Dan. Did you know what you wanted to do when you went to college? Yes. What was it? I'm just curious. Uh, uh, I, I think I've shared this. Actually, I think I shared this story in our very first episode. Um, I wanted to be an educator. I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, and I was very set on it. Um, until I went to go talk to uh, my favorite teachers, and they all universally told me, "Don't go into education. Um, it's it's terrible." And uh, that set my life to a very different path. Uh, but but eventually, I got back here. It took a while, but I got back. That being said, I know that that's an anomaly. Like you know, I'm I'm definitely very um, snap decisive. You know, I bought my car when I saw it. Went, oh, I'm going to buy that car today. I, you know, met my wife at a coffee shop, like, I'm going to marry that woman someday. So like, that might not be the best example for like, being sure of what you want to do. Like, my daughter's 16. And she was like, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. I'm like, that's fine. You're 16. Like, don't don't sweat that. <laughs> well, and maybe it's a foregone thing. But I think a lot of people go into higher education, or they graduate, you know, we're in the middle of graduation season, and all these, you know, fine young men and women are going to go off to do great things. That's awesome, right? And some of them have like, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. They have a clear-cut path. Like I wanted to be a theater major and I was going to be on Broadway and all this good stuff. And then one day I woke up and I'm like, I'm not going to make any money at this. What am I doing? And I had to totally take a break. And Jay, you, you kind of hinted that a little bit as well. Like there's a real danger, I think, in being too clear-minded around what we want to do. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this is such an interesting topic because when kids are growing up, inadvertently, uh, sometimes inadvertently, they get this message from the whole world that, you know, when you're 10 years old, you think, oh, what do I want to be? I want to be a pop star. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a race car driver or a professional athlete. And I think that's it. I think that's the option set. <laughs> so uh, you're a doctor. 
And I remember thinking early on, thinking, oh, that, I kind of liked a science class we had in school. We looked at some cool animals. So I'm like, all right, I want to be a doctor. If I say I want to be a race car driver, I'm not getting any play from my, my family at all. When I say I want to be a doctor, all of a sudden my grandmother's introducing me to her friends. Oh, this is Jay. He's, he's going to be a doctor. And, and it's almost like you get more love from your parents. You get more love from your, your guidance counselor at school. And if you have a big brain and some discipline, then you're good at not quitting things. So you think, oh, well, people like this. So I'm going to keep doing this. But the problem is then I'll get a student here who tells me I've wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon since I was 10. And I think, do <laughs> I really want to let a 10-year-old make the most important decision in the life of a person? Like, I like 10-year-olds, but come on, they shouldn't be making these critical decisions. So I don't view that when a student says that as, as a demonstration of their commitment to whatever the career path is, whether it's going to medical school or going to law school or something like that. I think that the student sitting next to them who looks at them enviously like, oh man, I don't know what I want to do. You're so much better off. I'm behind already. Like somehow it's a race to get to this career that you have. A big part of what Terry and I try to do in the secret syllabus is tell people, come into school without a plan, even without a major. That's good because guess what? You're going to get to college and they have majors like anthropology. I didn't know what anthropology was. Linguistics. I didn't know what linguistics was or applied math or all of these different things that weren't even on my radar. So if I'm allowed to have this plan from the time I'm 10, I've made that choice with the most narrow range of options and also with a brain that's very poorly developed. What we try to do is get students to, to shift their goals from the first couple of years of college instead of moving forward towards that goal. It's about in this year, I'm going to explore the options that are open to me. I'm going to learn about career paths that I never knew about. I'm going to investigate fields of inquiry that my parents haven't even heard of. I'm going to reflect on what are the things that bring me pleasure when I'm studying or doing things like this. If those are your goals, then it doesn't sound quite so much to your parents and your counselors like you're a loser, just drifting, because you're not. Not having a plan isn't the same as, as being a, a drifting loser. If you are being active about that plan. And I'm, of course, very wary of ever saying active, active learning. Julia would just <laughs> jump all over me for that uh, because, because many people, it means different things to. But I really want people to, to think that process is a good process because, because if not in college, when are you supposed to do that? And often I'll have students where I'll tell them, like, you've already been, been existing in a world of a huge amount of parental pressure. And I'll have students who tell me, they're like, no, actually, my parents are really chill. They're good with, with everything. And there hasn't been a lot of, of pressure. And they believe this. And it sounds reasonable. Their parents have always supported them. And I say, yeah, that's because you still are saying you want to be a doctor. And that's what you said when you were 10. I said, let's do a little experiment. Tell your parents that you are changing your major to English. See how chill they are after that. Not because I want you to make them mad at you, but because I want you to recognize that you have been living in a world where there are 
expectations. And there is pressure that causes you maybe to feel like it's more desirable to articulate a plan than it is to reflect on what the optimum plan would be. I'm the worst, the worst nightmare of every parent, I think. I know, I'm telling them I know. to I was, undo, I, undo your major and actually think about it. But come on, if, if you're a parent and you bragged all your friends about what a good kid you have and how, how reflective and thoughtful they are and they really have become a great person, have a little faith in them. Trust that they are going to use that good brain and the, the role model you've been to come up with something that's uniquely them, that you don't get to live your life again. It's, it's their life. But if you trust them, they'll get to, I think, a, an outcome that's best for them, not the outcome that they think is best for everyone around them. Jay, I absolutely love and agree with that sentiment. But also, I can only imagine how many parents have come to you in your office and been like, did you tell my son to become an English major? <laughs> That's fantastic. It's just a thought experiment. I want to give a lot of love out to our English majors that might be listening to the show. I have worked for many English majors, right? So uh, they're, they're wonderful, beautiful people, and they know how to spell something that I do not know how to do at all. And so that's a benefit. Go ahead, Jay. One of my brothers, one of my brothers was an English major with me at UCLA. And I will say that he's gone on from that even to then graduate school in English. He's gone on to become, I think, one of the, the clearest thinking, best critical thinkers and most interesting people on earth. So I, I do embrace that as, as a major. I'm just I'm using it for a lot of parents. They worry. They think, oh, no, that means you're going to be homeless or something. They might have a, a narrow view of what you can do with that, that degree. Uh, I come from a family of lawn engineers. Uh, my father's an engineer. My father's father was an engineer. His father was an engineer. And so when I was like, I'm going to go into education. They were like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, awesome. Hey, listen, uh, Julia, Jay, um, we're uh, sadly getting close to the time where we want to start wrapping some things up. But like I always want to do, I want to give you an opportunity to chat a little bit about some, maybe there's some really important things you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to today. So I'll start with you, Julia, and then we'll let, we'll let Jay go ahead and wrap it up. But you know, what are, what are some key things that you wanted to talk about that maybe you didn't have a chance to yet? I, I don't know if there's anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about, Scott. I think we, yeah, I think we talked about a lot of things. I mean, I think that for me, the, the real message that resonates from Jay and Terry's book is helping people be more proactive um, rather than reactive. And I know for me, you know, when I was in college, I didn't do any of those things. You know, so I followed none of those rules. I didn't have that book. And so I was, uh, I was really um, uh, agreeing with a lot of things that Dan was saying about, you know, how I was studying and how I was learning. And I was the student who, you know, got to the end of college and thought, oh, I guess I need a letter of recommendation, but I haven't really, you know, formulated any relationships with, with anyone or anything like that. And so I think that just really having that understanding that, all of these skills are exactly that. They're skills. And we can't expect, just like we don't expect anyone to roll out of bed an expert, you know, biologist or an expert, anything else. For me, the big take-home message is, you know, we have to be purposeful and intentional about teaching 
students how to succeed and how they learn and how to do these things without just making some assumptions that people will just absorb these things out of thin air and have good outcomes because you know some students will have have good outcomes just because but for the majority of students that's not the case so i think just being intentional and purposeful and proactive that's great wow uh now you know why i like her so much uh, i i'm just gonna piggyback on that because i think it's a it's such a wise thing this idea that you got to be proactive. What I find is that a lot of students get to the end of their college career and they, they need a time machine because all of a sudden they, they have this understanding of, of what they want and what they know, but they think, oh no, I need all these other things if I'm going to get that. They have to travel back. The problem is lag time is the enemy because for certain things, you cannot do it all. You can't pull an all-nighter. In a movie, there might be a montage where you pull an all-nighter and you work hard and you're crumpling up paper and throwing it away. And in the end, you have a great presentation. But for certain things like finding a mentor or find, getting to know someone, having a professional relationship so someone can guide you and then help you make these choices later on and maybe write a recommendation letter and get you things that you want, you can't develop a deep, real relationship overnight. If you hadn't started way back when by being proactive and thinking, I'm not sure why I'm going to office hours and I'm going to tell my professor, hey, I don't have any questions today. I just want to listen or I'm just curious about X, Y or Z. That proactive step will serve as your time machine later on that that when you realize you need this thing, you've been preparing for it your whole college career. You don't have to know where you're going. But you have to know that you're going to need people to support you. You're going to need allies. You're going to need people who are willing to stick their neck out for you later on. So from day one, remember that people need to like you. People need to know who you are. People need to want to help you to the extent that you can store goodwill and good impressions across you know, your world. That's going to serve you well better you know, later on. You're, you're go going to to not cash in on them, but you're going to benefit from those things. So even on day one, you don't know what's going on, but it's like a cliche, but this idea that, that your first impression with everyone is a really important one, that every interaction you have with your instructors or your, the graduate students or even your, your other students, your fellow students, it, you have to think of it as sort of like an interview almost. You are conveying to them, this is who I am, this is what I am, so that they form a good impression of you. I like thinking that too, because it then it helps me to be a better person than I would be otherwise. I have tendencies towards laziness or selfishness or this or that. But if I can remember that, I'm like, all right, let's try to bring the best version of me today. And that can, that can be helpful because it you know, it, it never gets easier. You just have to always work at that. And, and so knowing that on day one, that, that lag time is going to be the enemy, let present you do a favor to future you by, by laying the groundwork for, for, you know, allies. Well, that's fantastic. Love it. Thank you guys. I appreciate you coming on the show the book is called the secret syllabus it's coming out in july 
Could you do us a favor, um, and we'll start with Julie again, and then go to you, Jay. Could you let our audience know how they could connect with you more? Where can they find uh, more of your groovy stuff? Julia? Um, people can find more of my groovy stuff on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn, and they can go to my website, which is 211solutions.com. Um, and that's where they can find my groovy stuff. People can always find me at jay at ucla.edu. I have the best email address on earth, I think. And which, which just means that I've been here since they invented email. Or they can go to thesecretsyllabus.com where we will show you stuff about the book and how people are using it and how it helps and how you can get your copy, which is going to be important, right? When it comes out. Yeah, don't worry about that. All of that information is going to be on the show notes. If you guys scroll down to the bottom, there'll be a link to the Amazon page. Get your pre-order in so you can learn some stuff. Thank you so much. You're two of my favorite people, and I'm just so blessed that we can share some time today. Daniel-san. Yes, Scott. Could you do us a solid and let our audience know how they can connect with us? Absolutely. All right, party people, if you haven't already, or even if you have, hit us up at learningnerdscast at gmail.com. Email us any questions you might have, join in the discussion, tell us about your college trepidation horror stories. We want to hear about it. If you're on Facebook, you can find us at Learning Nerds. And lastly, for all of our Instagram peeps, you can find us at Fab Learning Nerds. Scott. Thanks, Dan. Hey, folks, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button, share the show out with your friends. We'd greatly appreciate it. If you're getting our podcast on a podcatcher such as iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, do me a favor. Will you please, please write a review? We'd love to hear how we're doing. It also helps get the word out uh, to more folks, get this fabulous message out to more people. With that, I'm Scott. I'm Dan. I'm Julia. And I'm Jay. And we're your fabulous learning nerds, and we are out. Thanks for listening to the Fabulous Learning Nerds. You know, there are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention. Meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment of offerings. If you're, if you're thinking of giving it a try, if you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.